This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. Our show focuses on how established companies can remain innovative and handle disruption challenges, and we bring in executives, industry experts, and academics as our guests to provide insights from their experience and work with us. Today, we have a special guest joining the show who's here in the studio with me. I'm thrilled to welcome Anuj Gupta, the general manager of the historic Reading Terminal Market located here in Philadelphia. The Reading Terminal recently celebrated its 125th year of continuous operation, and Anuj will tell us about the changes he's introduced since taking charge in 2015 and how he plans on taking the market into the future. We'll also get Anuj's take on the disruptions in the retail industry and the effect that they've had on him and his work. Anuj, thank you so much for joining me here in the studio today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Given that we have listeners not just locally but also around the world, tell us a little bit about the Reading Terminal Market, both what it offers today and how it's evolved over time in its illustrious history. Sure. So the the universal context point that I can offer that – goes beyond the United States is the game of Monopoly. Uh, if anyone played Monopoly and they purchased the Reading Railroad, yes. uh, then they bought the the building, the Reading Terminal building that the market is housed in. For most of the duration of the terminal's existence, it was home to the historic Reading Railroad. And at the height of the railroad's power, late 1800s, uh, the, the railroad came to the city of Philadelphia and they said, we have lines coming in from all around the region, other mm-hmm. states, and they're ending in different places. We would like to build a grand terminal. This is where we would like to build it, a fronting Market Street, which is the main east-west corridor in downtown Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Well, Market Street was called Market Street be- because of exactly what the name suggests. It was lined with outdoor markets from the river as the city slowly grew west uh, and and that is where regular Philadelphians bought their groceries on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So the city said, that's fine. You can build this grand terminal, but if you're going to knock out a significant row of these outdoor stalls, then you have to provide a space for a year-round indoor market. And that's how a railroad got into the business of running a private market. Now – the the market, as you said, it's, we're celebrating our 125th anniversary this year, yeah. and it's had many highs and lows over that century and a quarter. I do think the last 30 years are are quite uh, interesting, and they direct relate they direct they're directly related to what we are today as an institution and where we're going. Yeah. So if you dial back to the early 1990s in downtown Philadelphia, yeah. I'm going to use another analogy. It's a movie uh, analogy, 12 Monkeys, which is a Brad Pitt, Bruce Willis movie. Mm-hmm. It's a movie about the end of the world, about the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And the reason the director chooses Center City, Philadelphia to film this movie is because at the time we look apocalyptic. Our, si- our city hall is covered in a layer of soot. Mm-hmm. Across the street from City Hall, which is now a Ritz-Carlton condominium building, Mm -hmm. it's a 40-story bombed-out skyscraper. Mm -hmm. And the city is losing jobs and residents in droves. The the market itself is in a similar state of distress. So if you walked our corridors in 1990, 91, 92, here's what you would have likely have seen. We're down to about 20 merchants. The the, uh, ceiling of the market itself is hung with plastic tarp collecting rainwater pouring in from the abandoned train shed above. Wow. And customers are walking inside the market with umbrellas yeah. because every now and then that tarp of water would dump on their head. <sighs> and as I've been told, there were more rats in the building than there were customers. <laughs> so the the city leadership is facing an, a, an important question. Uh, the convention center has been created and authorized by the state of Pennsylvania. Construction is soon to begin. Do they demolish what's left of the terminal building and make additional uh, square provide additional square footage for the coming convention center? Yeah, or do they do something else? 
this is the point at which the the market goes from a private entity to the public entity. The city decides to save it. There's a very passionate group of uh, customers, of remaining merchants, of members of the media who fight to save this historic Philadelphia landmark. Mm-hmm. The way they save it is they renovate the building by making it part of the convention center facility. So the proceeds of the convention center financing finance the terminal's uh, renovation. Mm-hmm. And then they create a 501c3, a nonprofit corporation, to run the market. The primary purpose of the 501c3 is to ensure that Philadelphians, no matter where they live in the city, because every train line in the Philadelphia region comes to our front door. Every mm-hmm. subway line and trolley line comes within a block of us. Every bus line that comes through downtown Philadelphia is within uh, a block of us. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure that Philadelphians had access to fresh food on a daily basis. Back then, in the early 90s, most of our neighborhoods were devoid of fresh food options, supermarkets, grocery stores, even corner stores. Yeah. And so the Reading Terminal was a place, irrespective of where you lived, you could get to and access fresh food. Yeah. So the 501c3 is created. The, the Convention Center Authority becomes our landlord. And that is the, the inflection point. You can trace the resurgence of this iteration of the Reading Terminal, mm-hmm. and it really parallels the rise of Center City Philadelphia which has become the fastest-growing downtown of any big city in America. What a fascinating piece of history that you offered, um, in part because you also explained the name. But I was going to say that last part as well, which is, you know, Philly's experiencing a resurgence, and uh, the market reflects that. One thing I found particularly fascinating is you emphasize that, you know, in order to create this resurgence, it happened because we went from private to public, Oftentimes, when we talk about reviving things, we think in the opposite way, move away from government owned in some sense or public to some sort of private entity. Um, and that helps to restructure and change things, make things more efficient, et cetera. Yep. Very fascinating. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the this is the perfect instance in which the public sector does step in mm-hmm. because the building's demise – the loss of the Reading Railroad, and of course the, the the failure of the market at the at the time. That, in my mind, is a market failure. When does government or some form of the public sector best step in? Yeah, it is when the market is failing to provide a good or service, and there is a void that needs to be filled. In this case, there was no private actor that saw a market opportunity yeah. to save the Reading Terminal. Okay, and number two. There are very specific reasons for why a 501c3 is created. Number Mm -hmm. one, it's a fundraising entity. So you have a building that is falling apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, the convention center financing is going to take care of a a fair amount of that. But the need to raise resources to save this institution doesn't just end with the building's renovation. It becomes an ongoing concern. Mm -hmm. So a nonprofit is well-situated to do that. Uh, number two, remember the food access priority. Yeah. Okay. We don't want vendors to sell apples for two ninety nine a pound or yeah. whatever the market might command. Yeah. We want them to sell them at ninety nine cents a pound or a dollar ninety nine a pound. Yeah. And to that point, if you look at data today, which we have from the United States Department of Agriculture, we are apparently the largest redemption site for SNAP, which is a Supplemental Nutrition Access Program, food mm-hmm. stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the largest redemption site in the state of Pennsylvania. So low to moderate income Philadelphians are still utilizing the market every day for that fresh food access. One, because they have accessibility. Mm-hmm. Two, because the we offer a very high level of quality across mm-hmm. the board. Mm-hmm. And then three, it's the price point. You get to the price point by not – in a private real estate scenario, you are passing on the full cost of the real estate to the tenant. Yeah. In this case, as a nonprofit, we don't have a bottom line to grow. Yeah. Uh, we just have to cover it, yeah. our operating costs. And, and uh, that results in – an alleviation of market pressure on the merchants to raise prices. Yeah, and I like how you formulated it, you know, reconciling it with uh, economic theory, essentially, and and making the market failures argument and and also the public service that you're providing. Now, if I understand correctly, what's interesting is that you have a very diverse mix of customers, right? The low and and medium uh, end that you're talking about, the middle classes, but also people on the other end of the spectrum who just value the Reading Terminal. Yeah. 
when when the nonprofit was chartered, yeah. I, I find this to be a very uh, thoughtful and progressive instance of policymaking. Mm-hmm. So if you read the mission statement that was crafted uh, by city leaders and other stakeholders that were involved, it was not only intended to be the this point of uh, fresh food and, and an opportunity to bring together the urban and rural economies that, yeah. that Pennsylvania provides. It it is also very explicitly calls out part of our mission is to essentially be the melting pot of Philadelphia. It was intended to be a place that celebrates and embraces the diversity of our city. Mm-hmm. Now what you find today is I I I argue it is not just the most diverse public space in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I would say it's one of the nation's most diverse public spaces because at any instance that you walk down our corridors, mm-hmm. you will see every race, every religion, every mm-hmm. ethnicity, the entire income spectrum as I described, every geography – and we're not changing anything about ourselves at at a given moment to appeal to one group versus another. They are all coming in and utilizing uh, the, the market in essentially the same way. I love to use the example of our mayor, uh, yeah. Mayor Kenny. He's a big fan of, of the ranked terminal market. Yeah. As a councilman, he came in quite often. As mayor, he still comes in surprisingly often. Yeah. And I'll see him in line. He insists on standing in line with anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I'll say to mayor – we have a, a conference room upstairs. I can clear it out for you. You can have a nice, quiet lunch upstairs. Yeah. No, he insists on sitting in our co- communal seating area, yeah. uh, which, again, that's an increasingly hard uh, framework to find yeah. in public spaces, cleans the table himself, and sits down and has lunch with complete strangers. There is a pen, uh, gentleman named Elijah Anderson. He's now a professor at Yale. He was mm-hmm. in the sociology department here at, at University of Pennsylvania for many years. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book uh, called The Cosmopolitan Canopy. It's about five public spaces in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And what he was trying to describe was how those public spaces either catalyzed or failed to catalyze interactions between complete strangers. Mm-hmm. He writes a chapter about the market. He spent months just observing people complete strangers, no relation to him or, yeah. or themselves. And what he found was this unique power of this of this institution. When people walk through our doors, the the racial boundaries, the income boundaries, the language barriers we establish, mm-hmm. whatever barrier you want to erect, they fall when people are in that market. And you, he observed a level of interaction between total strangers across these divides that you just don't see. So n- not only was it thoughtful to develop that in our mission statement back in the early 90s, yeah. now in 2018, I would argue that's more important than ever. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And and thanks for providing that visual on what the market is. You know, I I interpret from what you're saying, it's partly a market for selling fresh produce. It's partly a place for people to, you know, come together. It's partly a place where you can have lunch. Are there any other roles that you see this public space as you formulated fulfilling? But, but, well, let me, let me talk about that for a moment. So, because that, that's sort of the crux of my challenge, this balance that you described between being a place for fresh food uh, prepared food and and items in between. Yeah, uh, it is that delicate balance we have maintained that now has propelled us from the depths that we had reached in the early nineties yeah. down to the twenty merchants and customers with umbrellas. Yeah, now we're the most visited site in the Philadelphia region. Last year we drew seven point two million visitors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We have. 100% occupancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when a vacancy arises, it's frankly because we are in the fortunate position. We can decide what we want mm-hmm. and when we want to bring it in. How uh, many vendors are there? Uh, over 80. Over 80. They provide 350 to 400 jobs on a daily basis. The annual spend in the building is $64 million. And that all of those statistics are well and good, and I, I think they attest to the uh, the the power of small business and, frankly, the economic uh, impact of this institution that was recreated in the early in the early 90s. Beyond that, though, I believe that it is, it is far more than just a retail site mm-hmm. or a good place to get a sandwich or a good place to get a steak. It is part of Philadelphia's civic fabric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to give you one example of a project we did in, in light of that. So two years ago, 
we won a national grant uh, from the Knight Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we used it – actually, University of Pennsylvania was a partner of ours in this. Uh, We launched a project called Breaking Bread, Breaking Barriers. Mm We, I had read Dr. Anderson's uh, observations about the market and about its unique ability to bring people of different divides together. I'm also aware of what my mission statement is, and that's part of my obligation as general manager to fill that mission statement. Yeah. So I said to myself, here we have this organization that brings people across diverse backgrounds together. Yeah. We have a, a city that is increasingly diversifying. We have immigration that at a pace we haven't seen in nearly 100 years. I have a self-interest on behalf of the market to build relationships with the newest Philadelphians while also maintaining uh, relationships with long, long-term Philadelphians. Can we take Dr. Anderson's observations and bottle them up in a structured way to build those relationships and bring our city a little closer together? So we started this project in which we brought together 12 communities across the city. Mm-hmm. In each case, it was an immigrant community either paired with another immigrant community or a, a native-born community that they live near. Mm-hmm. And the goal was they would come together for an evening in which they would teach one another to cook each other's cuisine. I believe our cuisine re- represents far more than just the ingredients that we put into it. It's a reflection of our history, of our stories, of our values, of what's important to us. And if we can start to understand one another's cuisine, maybe we can start to understand one another. Then after they they cook this meal together, they then sit down, they have dinner together, mm-hmm. and the dinner is the, the dialogue over dinner is facilitated by the city's Human Relations Commission. We did this with communities across the city. We brought together uh, West African refugees and African American residents. Uh, we brought together Syrian refugees with residents of Northeast Philadelphia, uh, Cambodian resi- uh, immigrants with South Philadelphia residents, and a variety of other iterations. That to me, I'm I'm telling you the story because that to me describes the broader role that we have in Philadelphia. Yeah, it is not just a place to yeah. uh, get a good meal or get the ingredients for a good meal. Yeah, we have a role in bringing the city a little closer together and being that forum. And that's that nice balance that that you were talking about earlier as well. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Choudhury, and I'm speaking with Anuj Gupta, general manager of the historic Reading Terminal Market, which dates back to 1892. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you, and I want to get into a little bit about your vision um, for the market in the future. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you about something you touched upon, which is that there are numerous changes and perhaps challenges that are occurring just because of the different disruptions and and adaptations that we have to observe in the retail space broadly. I mean, you have the online shopping phenomenon with Amazon, but of course then Amazon is the same company which now has bought Whole Foods and wants to get into brick and mortar, but in a very specific way. Farmers markets are seeing a resurgence. We've got food halls and food courts, especially upscale ones. In fact, here at UPenn, we just uh, had one at the corner of 34th and Walnut Streets. There are prepared foods by companies like Tyson who are getting more aggressive and smarter about tackling all that. What do you think about these trends? Are they which ones do you prioritize? There's just so much going on and how yeah. do you think about all these changes? Well, let's there's two layers of of the trends that I want to talk about. Yeah. One is uh national trends and changes in in customer behavior and patterns. Mm-hmm. And two what what is happening locally? Let's talk about what's happening locally. So downtown Philadelphia, as as I referenced before, it's now the fastest growing downtown of any big city in the country. Yeah. The growth is fueled largely by millennials and immigrants, some empty nesters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time uh, after 55 years of population decline in 2007, the, starting, the city started to gain population. And now for 10 years, we have incrementally gained population each year. Mm-hmm. Very positive trend for our city. That being said, commercial activity has followed the residential boom. And if you are a resident of Center City, Philadelphia, the landscape that you're living in now Mm -hmm. is vastly different in 2018 than if you lived here 20 years ago. So your choices as a consumer, period, are uh, extraordinary. 
on the shopping side. And of course, on the dining side, our city's culinary scene is off the charts. Now, there was a time when the Reading Terminal was the only game in town. You, yeah. If you wanted to shop for fresh food, yeah. you were one of the only choices you had. Even on the prepared food side, it was one of the few lunch options you had if you worked around That's right. uh, the market. Now, the choices are innumerable. So I want to establish that and put that to one side. Now, let's talk about national trends. 2016 was the first year on record, at least as far as this data has been kept, yeah. that the sales of prepared foods exceeded the sales of fresh foods. Yeah. Irrespective of where you live, all of the trends are pointing towards people wanting a uh, a good, nutritious meal mm -hmm. with some knowledge of where the ingredients, what the ingredients are and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And they want it to taste like a home-cooked meal. Mm -hmm. They just don't want to cook it themselves. themselves. They don't have the time. They don't have the inclination, so on and so forth. And the so that has driven the growth of meal kits. Mm -hmm. That has driven the growth of these mail order services like Blue Apron, Purple Carrot, Fresh Direct. Yeah. That has driven the growth of online purchasing options and delivery services that the bricks and mortar yeah. grocers are getting into. Yeah. So I, I want to establish all of that sure. because it's, it's two, two layers of trends that are affecting us. Now, how do we respond to all of that. Yeah. That is my uh, absolutely my biggest challenge as general manager. And people often think of uh, – and the rank terminal is often placed on the top three th things you must do when you come to Philadelphia. <laughs> That's right. The Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, maybe the Art Museum yeah. and the Reading Terminal. That's wonderful that tourists come. Uh, we welcome them. We welcome conventioneers when they come to our city. If they have no time to see any other aspect of our city, if they come into the doors of the market yeah. for an hour, they'll get a sense of what our city is about. It's a good reflection of our city. But here's why tourists and conventioneers come. Because they know it is an authentic Philadelphia institution. It is designed specifically to serve locals first and foremost rather than just serving tourists and and travelers yeah so i in in order to maintain our vibrancy for another 125 years yeah again we do nothing to dissuade the tourists from coming yeah and, and I, in fact they've turned our summer season which used to be quite slow yeah into a fairly stable business part of the business cycle but if we lose the ability uh, to tr draw our locals, if we fail to provide them with what they are looking for, yeah. the tourists will eventually stop coming as well. Yeah. So I, I am constantly striving to ensure that the market – there's sort of three layers to my uh, strategic plan for the market. Yeah. One is we've got to get our basics right as much as possible in that the the – perception of the regular customer is that it is clean and safe. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not worried about when you go into a Whole Foods, whether the aisles are going to be clean or whether there's any uh, safety issue to be concerned about. And so that's the expectation our competitors are able to offer their customers. We mm -hmm. have to offer the same. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, as the, the city has taken off as a culinary destination, uh, we have to recenter ourselves in the middle of of that culinary universe. So the types of concepts that I bring in, I'm looking for innovative concepts that yet still meet the needs of our our regular customers. I want concepts that you have to come to the Reading Terminal to patronize because you're not going to find them anywhere else. And I can give you a couple of examples of that. Sure. Yeah. And then three. We have to improve our accessibility. Accessibility, uh, I define it more broadly than the ordinary interpretation of the word. Uh, it is physical accessibility. It is virtual accessibility. It is a feeling of accessibility, uh, that this is a place that you are welcome in, so on and so forth. So within those three prongs of my plan, I'm happy to point out examples of how we've tried to respond to this uh, this incredibly dynamic environment. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And I think I think that's a logical next place to go because it ties in with the vision of the future. You know, so you were you were touching upon this earlier. I mean, is the market then going to be a place to shop or eat or maybe host events and experiences of some sort? 
It's it's all of the above. So let's let's talk about um, how we've applied some of those principles and in, in our strategic plan in all of those areas. Yeah. The first merchant that I brought in, I started in general as general manager in 2015, mm-hmm. and I, I started in June of that summer. The, my first task uh, on hand was to prepare the market for Pope Francis's arrival. Pope yeah. Francis was coming to Philadelphia that summer, and we were expecting literally thousands upon thousands of people descending into not only our city but in our building. Yeah, and so just getting the operations of the building situated and uh, properly in line so we could accommodate these crowds. Well, the funny thing about that was the crowds never materialized. Mm -hmm. In fact, we probably would have been better off being closed for Mm -hmm. those three days. Mm -hmm. But it it forced me to learn the mechanics of the market very quickly. So once that passed, I turned my attention to leasing. And the first merchant that I brought in, it was actually a concept – uh, created by an existing merchant in the market. She's owned a bakery there. Her name is Elizabeth Halen. Mm-hmm. Uh, she came up with a concept that it, it, it's extraordinarily simple at its uh, premise, but very innovative in that you're not going to find it anywhere else. The idea is it's called condiment, mm-hmm. and the idea is this. Any basic ingredient you need for cooking a meal at home, mm-hmm. butter, uh, sa- uh, salad dressings, marinades, salsas, dips, toppings, uh, you name it. Mm-hmm. It's all being made daily from scratch from ingredients in the market. So many of these items, whether it's butter or mustard or ketchup or some of these salsas, yeah. we take them for granted as yeah. shelf-stable items. We've forgotten what they're supposed to taste like. You have a, uh, a a bar of freshly churned butter. Yeah. It's customizable. It's compounded 10 different ways. You can add fresh herbs and spices on it. Yeah. It elevates your cooking experience to a whole nother level. Uh, and so that was, that was the first concept that I brought in, again, tying into that theme of being innovative and offering customers something that you have to come to the market to patronize it because you're not going to find that anywhere else so that that's an example of of how we're trying to innovate on the the uh on the fresh food side of the market yeah on the prepared food side of the market the the newest merchant that will open uh in knock on wood maybe a week or so at Two gentlemen, they've never run a bricks-and-mortar restaurant before. They've only done catering. Mm -hmm. It's Puerto Rican street food. Now, that doesn't sound so novel, but on its face. Yeah. But you're not going to find that cuisine anywhere in downtown Philadelphia, uh, at least not in a fast, casual uh, setting. And we have a a fast-growing Latino community in the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, A fair proportion of that is Puerto Rican. If I'm positioning – if I'm trying to position the market as Philadelphia's market and make it welcoming to Philadelphians across the board, yeah. then we need to reflect Philadelphia. Yeah. So the name of the, the store is called Loco Lucho. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an example of how we're trying to bring in innovation on, on the prepared front and, again, offer some customers something they're not going to get anywhere else. And then you, you mentioned the experience. So yeah. we – we have a fair amount of, of data on our customers and our customer behavior. Mm-hmm. We know in comparison to our competition, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, conventional, ShopRite, yeah. Acme, et cetera, uh, of course, the mail order services because there is no experience there. Yeah. We know that we offer an experience that simply can't be replicated at those places. Uh, to highlight that, I'll, I'll use myself as an example – before I was general manager, I, I'm a foodie. Mm-hmm. I do all the, the cooking at home. I figured as much. Yep. I was going to ask you, but I figured yep. as much. <laughs> and uh, so I live in northwest Philadelphia. Now, yeah. you can fairly easily drive down, but we also have several trains that run from that section of the city down to yeah. the market. So every Saturday morning, I would hop on the train. At the time, my daughter, she was uh, a toddler. She was in a stroller. Yeah. So I'd bring her down with me. We sit down at the market. We'd have a stack of children's books. I'd read to her. We'd uh, then have breakfast uh, together, and then we'd walk around the market and we'd get all of our groceries. Yeah. Now we're doing a couple things all at the same time. One is I'm getting 
ingredients. I'm getting meats. I'm getting produce. I'm getting seafood yeah. at a level of quality and price that I can't get in my neighborhood grocery store. Mm-hmm. Two is I'm spending time with my daughter. Uh, it's you, you can't replace that time. Uh, I'm teaching her things. Just the visual, the, the sensory experience that she is getting, the smells, the sounds, the sights, yeah. that's an educational experience uh, as, as she is developing as, as, a, uh, as a toddler. I wouldn't think of spending that kind of time yeah. in an ordinary grocery store, yeah. even a farmer's market. There yeah. you are just – sort of obligating yourself to the chore of getting whatever groceries you need. Mm-hmm. So and and what I've discovered as general manager is that that experience in fact specifically on Saturday mornings we have generations of shoppers that have been doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Not only to come in and get their ingredients, but spend time with one another, spend time with strangers that they have met there and become good friends with. And so many of many of the new initiatives we've launched and the programs we've offered Mm-hmm. are intended to leverage uh, and expand upon the experience that folks get when they come into the market. So one of the first things I started on Saturday mornings, the f- uh, second and fourth Saturday of every month, we we have a demonstration kitchen. It was being used uh, sparingly. And so we started a series whereby uh, a writing terminal chef or a chef from the outside uh, will come in and do a free public uh, engaging demonstration on either a theme dish or or a dish that you can make from products in the market. So we've had everyone from Mayor Kenny and the Philly Fanatic. Uh, we've had celebra- international celebrity chefs like uh, Rich Landau and his wife Kate Jacoby. Yeah. And, of course, many, many of our market talent come in. They do these demos on Saturday mornings. There, the public, you can walk in for free. Yeah. Uh, you can learn how the, the chef is preparing the food. You can ask them questions. Uh, you can build a rapport with the owner in a way that you're not going to get at our competition. And one of the other defining characteristics of the market that we have not strayed from, yeah. we do not allow chains or franchises as a matter of policy in the building. Uh, we we are very emphatic on the owner-operator model of business. Mm-hmm. The person that sold you the sausage likely made it, and they opened the store in the morning, and they closed it at night. Now, that's a very old-world style of doing business. I like it. But we also believe that's what distinguishes us and, and elevates that experience. You started telling us about all these initiatives that you're taking to meet and address these different trends and changes in the industry. I'm curious, also in the spirit of the show, how are you coming up with these new ideas for staying, at least adapting or, or staying ahead of the game even, yep. in order to uh, deal with the competition that you're facing that's coming obviously from multiple quarters as you identify? Sure. So when I, uh, when I drafted the strategic plan that I referenced in the first part of the show, the, the plan was informed by kind of the usual suspects of, of data points. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had... Uh, census data and economic data from the federal government about uh, patterns, uh, demographic patterns in downtown Philadelphia and beyond that relate that are important to us. Mm-hmm. We had data on uh, national uh, food purchasing patterns and that trend I had described of mm-hmm. the shift from uh, prepared or fresh foods to prepared foods. So. We had all of that. We also had quite a bit of uh, customer intercept uh, studies from or surveys from uh, surveys we had administered for several years to better understand what our customers were doing. Uh, we had hired consultants to look at what our competition was doing. Mm-hmm. I think all of the things that you would ordinarily do when you when you think about how to draft a, a strategic plan, particularly responding to a competitive environment. Part of it was also based on anecdote, and I think there's a role for anecdote. Uh, you, you don't want to base a plan or a, a step in its entirety yeah. on it, yeah. but if it's substantiated, and frankly, if you've seen other people uh, reiterate the similar antidote, yeah. then I think there's something to it. Yeah. So one of the antidotes I, I love to reference is going back to those Saturday mornings with my daughter. Yeah. We took the train down. We did not drive. And she was in a stroller. Now, the market has no – or at the time had no grocery carts. 
So I'm using I, – I decide I'm going to – there's so much that I want to buy. I mean mm-hmm. the the meats, the produce, I, and I, once I start, I, it's hard to stop. <laughs> so I would find myself in this Pavlovian dog scenario every Saturday morning <laughs> where I would end up loading loading up the, the stroller on both handles with grocery bags. Okay, that's a little manageable. Then there's a sash underneath the seat. Yeah. I've stuffed some grocery bags down there. And then I've got a backpack and I've got groceries on there. Yeah. All right. Well, that's okay if the accessibility on and off the train is with a ramp. Yeah. But it's not. And so what I would I, I would find myself I'd get on the train, my daughter would invariably fall asleep. Yeah. She's a 2-year-old. Yeah. I get to the end of the train line, I've got like six bags of groceries, I've got a stroller and I've got a sleeping baby. There's no way I can physically get down the the set of steps from the train to the <laughs> yes. ground. More less, forget about getting the block up to our house. So I, at 15 minutes away from home, I would always end up calling my wife. I said, "Okay, I've done it again. You need to bring the car down to yeah. the end of the block. Yeah, get on the train, pick us up, help me with all these groceries, and then yeah. get us back home." Yeah. Uh, but I tell you that story because that informed. Uh, a a uh, project we launched. I guess it's been about two years now. Where on weekends and now more recently, we offer it Wednesday through Sunday. It's a shopper services desk, mm-hmm. and we offer everything. Now we do have grocery carts, mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> if you are walking around the market with bags, one of the impediments I found is, and the reason I would stuff everything in the stroller, I can't carry everything. Absolutely. Right? Once, in fact, our data has pointed to this. Generally, once the customer gets to about three bags, yeah. even if they want to buy more, they're done. Yeah. So we introduced a very simple concept. We have free storage space and a concierge. Uh, if you are shopping there, we have dry storage, refrigeration, and freezers. Mm-hmm. We will hold your bags for you as long as you want. Mm-hmm. You can leave the market. You can go uh, run errands in other part of the city. You can come back at the end of the day. Your bags will still be waiting there for you. In addition to that, we introduced curbside pickup on weekends. So mm-hmm. now you can leave your bags with a concierge, uh, pull up on one side of the market, call the desk, and we will run the bags out to you. And then on top of that, uh, we worked with Temple University about a year and a half ago to develop a module for uh, what we call market ambassadors. Mm-hmm. What I wanted was a set of trained volunteers who wear a, a uniform that marks them as, as a representative of the market, that walk around, they rove the market, and they are available as a reference point for information on just about anything, mm-hmm. from how to get to the restroom, to where the train station is, to who sells what and where they are located. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've got about 30 of these ambassadors that uh, work with us. They range from high school students to retired mm-hmm. retirees living in Center City. Uh, they do it because they love the market. They're not getting paid for it. And... All of that comes from my experience as a shopper mm-hmm. and a regular customer and understanding the challenges of, of navigating this 125-year-old building with big crowds. What I love about how you're describing your approach is that it's both systematic and at the same time allows for serendipity. And uh, clearly, on the one hand, you're a very strategic thinker. Uh, at the same time, you're using a lot of data as well and, and analyzing these customer behaviors, both from internal and external sources, yet you're allowing just simple common sense, human observation, even the anthropological part where, look, ethnography, I'm studying myself and what I need in order to come up with these new ideas. You make it sound so easy, though. Does everybody in your organization think like you? What are the challenges you had to overcome to kind of get others acquainted with the changes that have to come as the market evolves, I imagine there are people who would love to see the market continuing in the same way as it always has um, and may not always have the same ideas that you do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we have merchants that in some cases they have been with us since the inception of the market, Bassett's Ice Cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's America's oldest continuously operating ice cream company. They've been in the market since 1893 when it opened, mm-hmm. still family-owned business. There are many others that uh, you can track a family legacy 60, 70, 80 years. Mm-hmm. And then you layer on that customers who have been uh, patronizing right. the market 
beyond those days that I described in the early 90s. They can they can remember the the 50s and 60s when the market was still sort of in its heyday. Yeah, uh, and and tell you stories from that. And so, uh, w- w- change when when you are are dealing with uh, sort of institutionally vested stakeholders, yeah. uh, like those merchants and customers, uh, is not easy. I think the reason I've been able to move ideas forward, one, particularly with the merchants, mm-hmm. uh, this is not your ordinary landlord-tenant scenario, whereby the landlord decrees something and the tenant either complies or is in breach of the lease. Yeah. So we have two nonprofit organizations at the market. We have the, the corporation that I run, mm-hmm. and then there is a nonprofit merchants association representing the interests of the business owners. I involve them in almost every aspect of running this market, mm-hmm. from marketing to our uh, capital plan to the operations of the market. Every month we have a set of meetings whereby the market, my staff, my team, and I meet with the merchants, whoever wants to, to join in these committees to help us uh, discuss issues, come up with solutions mutually, and figure out a plan to put them in action. So I, I think what, what I demonstrated first was the willingness not only to listen, but to uh, incorporate other ideas. And I've, I always say from the get-go, there, there's no scenario in which I'm going to be the smartest person in the room. So if I don't know how to listen, I will fail as a leader. Uh, and how can I not take advantage of these people that have either been running businesses or patronizing the market for as long as they have? They have tremendous value yeah. uh, that that if I can leverage some portion of that towards how we stay successful into the future, I need to figure out ways to do that. So I think that was one key to it. And then the other key is just demonstrating uh, – that I really care about this place, yeah, because it is infused with people that are passionate about it. Yeah, again, those those merchants, their 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 livelihood, their their family legacies are rooted in this market. Yeah, uh, the customers, those that, I mean, I've got a gentleman, he and his wife have been driving up every Saturday morning from uh, south of Wilmington, so yeah. it's you know, a good forty minute drive yeah. for twenty five years. Twenty five wow. years. What draws him? Of course, the, there's the the product and the quality and the price, but that's that's for a commitment like that. There's a deeper love of the institution, and so if if they see that I'm on the same page on the same wavelength, and I demonstrate it through yeah. my actions, my words, uh, etc., change becomes easier to move forward. When one of the biggest issues that I uh, faced when I started was just the cleanliness of the building. There were serious deficiencies in uh, how we were performing as a housekeeping team, how merchants were keeping up their stands. And that was one of the top areas of complaint that we found in our our customer surveys. So uh, uh, in addition to getting the building ready for Pope Francis's arrival, uh, I really focused on reorienting our maintenance staff and housekeeping staff. And one of the things that I did just to learn, it's not a, it's, it's a hard job that our maintenance team has when they are pushing through five, 6,000 people that sure. are in the building at any given time. And they're trying to pick up spills and uh, empty trash cans and respond to who, all kinds of things being thrown at them. What is it like to actually work on the floor? So yeah. I spent there f- f- I can't remember first month or two, I did a couple of trash runs just to understand what it's like to push these trash carts through our aisles. Uh, And that way I can make changes easier once I have some basis of understanding of what their job entails. So listening to you, what I conclude from that is clearly having this multi-stakeholder approach, all the people who are invested in the place over time as well, um, you know, having them involved, managing that, taking their inputs and, and also orchestrating the change with them is clearly very critical. But the last part is also very important. I just want to underscore that for our listeners, which is that it makes sense for you to figure out 
um, what you want to do only after you understand exactly what the challenges are. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Saika Chaudhary, and my guest is Anuj Gupta, General Manager of the Reading Terminal Market. Now, the final thing I want to ask you about is, um, you know, I, I think I have a better idea about this, but I was wondering about this when I came into this show and, and uh, was thinking about our conversation in advance, which is what brought you to this position? Yeah. Because, um, you know, you're trained in law, but also public administration. You've served in government. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see the link now with the public uh, type of space arguments yep. you were making and everything else. But still, you know, I know that your family has had a business uh, in the prepared foods area as well. Can you tell us a little bit of that? What drew you to this sure. new project or challenge? Uh, so the writing terminal, I think, uniquely combined two parallel tracks in, in my life. Mm-hmm. One has been my longstanding interest in government, in politics, uh, in the public space Broadly speaking, yeah, uh, I am a lawyer by training. I practiced real estate law. Uh, I went to work in city government when our last mayor was elected, and prior to this, I ran another nonprofit in uh, Northwest Philadelphia that provided an array of of programs and services, much of which is analogous analogous to uh, my job as general manager. I see. We did real estate development, and we managed a real estate portfolio. So. That's part of my job here. Two is we ran the business association in that part of the city. So very similar to representing and working with 80 small business owners within the market. Mm-hmm. And then we provided a, a host of social services. Um, so the market, because of its unique structure, as I described, it was f- effectively created by the city. The, it's a state-owned building on city property. Mm-hmm. Our board of directors includes the mayor, city council, other public officials. So it, it is very – it is a quasi-public entity, and it, for yeah. lack of a better term. Uh, and the, the broader role that I described, it, it very much reflects uh, things that I've tried to do and I'm interested in doing in my career, uh, particularly in and around cities. So that's one whole stream in, in my career. Yeah. The other is I grew up in a family uh, food business. Both yeah. of my parents, uh, they they started a business on the side. They were pioneers, and they started what was one of the first prepared shelf-stable Indian food companies in America. Uh, it's called Jyoti Foods. Yes. Uh, you'll find it their, their products in grocers around the country. Now I know who it is. Yeah, 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 it's my mother. <laughs> uh, five years ago, I actually opened my own restaurant. Uh, it's a fast, casual Indian restaurant in Mount Airy. That's northwest Philadelphia yeah. with all of my mother's recipes. And, and in fact, when I was interviewing for the job as uh, general manager – I said to them, look, I understand what it's like to have a family-owned business, and I understand what it's like to work behind the counter because I've done it myself. When I started my restaurant, I would work on on weeknights and weekends uh, quite often. And so food has been a very important part of my upbringing. Uh, Both of my parents trained themselves to be gourmet chefs. Dinner every night was a big ordeal. Uh, every <laughs> night it was a different cuisine, and we had to sit down and have uh, what my father and my mother prepared. And uh, and then w- travel was also a big part of our upbringing. So being exposed to cuisines around the world, uh, being forced to try uh, new things on a very consistent basis made food a big part of my life. Uh, so – that's why I was a shopper at the market because I could get ingredients there that I couldn't get el- elsewhere. Yeah. And that's why the, those two worlds really collided here very uniquely. That's fascinating. Um, you've clearly had, on the one hand, a slightly unconventional career. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, the clarity of your thought and how you think about the transferable skills that you've built over time, even in making this link just to the Reading Terminal Market from your previous positions, is astounding. Um, And I think noteworthy, you know, we're at a university. What single piece of advice would you give to anyone who's graduating from here if they have unconventional interests or paths they want to pursue that will help them in that journey? Hmm. Uh, well, one, I I discovered uh, pretty early on when, <laughs> when I was 14 years old, I told my father I wanted to go to law school. Mm-hmm. I knew that this 
this st- sort of stream in my career was what was pulling in, at me and tugging me. Mm-hmm. But when I was 18, I frankly didn't know any better, and my parents convinced me to start uh, my undergraduate degree in engineering. Mm-hmm. I was a horrible student. <laughs> I was a horrible student. I was uh, – I mean I couldn't stay awake in class. I had no interest <laughs> in the subject matter. And after my sophomore year of college, my grades were so bad, uh, I called my parents up and I said, I am now it, it, putting at peril my chances of getting into law school. <laughs> I'm going to change my major. And I changed it. Fortunately, the the college I went to had a very good public policy program. Well, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. And so I ended up uh, graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Public Policy. Yeah. And I, I, I was selected as the graduation speaker. Mm-hmm. And I, the the word the sentiment I expressed is you have got to follow what you are passionate about because if you are not excited on a day to day basis about what you're doing, uh, you're not going to be able to get up in the morning and do it successfully. So that's the first piece of advice. Number mm-hmm. two is many of the degrees that you get at the graduate level, whether it's an MBA or a JD, uh, they're extraordinarily versatile. Yeah. And I I have found I, I I'm glad I practice law. The skills that I gained as a lawyer, I use them every day, absolutely. Uh, whether it's negotiating a lease that I can do myself and I can draft it myself because I did it as a lawyer, mm-hmm. or just thinking analytically about uh, potential issues or liabilities that we might face as an organization. So there are pursue that passion and uh, think more broadly about what your degree allows you to do. Thank you. Very, very important pieces of advice. Anuj, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. It's unfortunately that time uh, where we have to go. We've had such a wonderful time today. And thank you to everyone for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on our Twitter at BizRadio111. You can, of course, follow the Mac Institute at our Twitter handle at Mac Institute, as well as our website, where we'll also be posting about the show. Until next time, I'm Saika Chaudhary, Executive Director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and a Professor of Management here at Wharton. And this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.